Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with John Tyson, who is an author and pastor. So stay tuned. Welcome back again to another episode of the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. And thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with John Tyson. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. I know this is a special treat today. This is the second time that John will be on. If you're a long-time listener, if you've tuned in to John before, um, you know a little bit more about him, but I'm sure that this will throw in uh, an extra twist uh, of excitement and joy in this conversation. Really excited to talk a little bit more about his latest book, Beautiful Resistance, the Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And so before hopping into this book, we diagnose and just look at a little bit more of the the spiritual landscape uh, in New York, um, especially across these last five years. There's been there's been quite some change, um, but also obviously some continuity and some consistency um, in, in what's been going on. And so he, he elaborates a little bit more about what it means to be a disciple um, or an apprentice today. And so some of the challenges, especially in a place like New York um, and some of these larger cities, especially in the United States, and some pain points with the acceptance of the, the gospel in, in Western culture, um, and just where he's been finding some joy, some the presence of God uh, in these times. And so this, this podcast was recorded at the end of July. And so he was uh, definitely in a little bit of a different time frame right off the release of his book. But uh, I'm super excited for this conversation today with John Tyson. John, thanks so much for joining me and the Guys Like Us podcast. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. That's right. So we had John on a few years ago now with The Burden is Light, and now he, uh, you're fresh off your latest release, um, Beautiful yes. Resistance, Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. Um, so I'd love to get into that in just a moment, but uh, would just kind of like, like to open up with uh, just how things have been changing in New York. I think this would be a good prelude to uh, yeah. understanding the, maybe a bit more of the context behind uh, the book. So, can you talk about just the spiritual landscape of New York City? Um, I'd say you know maybe across the past you know three to five years now. Yeah, sure. Well, um, by the way, man, congrats on the podcast. It seems like things have gone really, really well since we were on there last, and you've had some incredible gifts. So, way Thank to uh, suggest. So, way to go, man, for stepping out and uh, staying consistent and faithful. Man. So, it okay. is it is good to be back. Uh, New you. York City, man. My hometown, I love this place. Uh, so, yeah, I've been in New York 15 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically most of my adult life, uh, the only churches I've pastored as a senior pastor have been in the city. So it, it, in some sense, it feels so normal and so natural to me. Mm-hmm. And then in a moment like this, you get a little distance from it and you can really sort of look back and see how things have happened. Um, the last three to five years, I would say, there's definitely been an increase in hostility towards the Christian faith like a visceral ramping up of opposition mm-hmm. to Christianity. Before there mm-hmm. was sort of like a, an apathetic disdain, you know, mm-hmm. like a low-grade disgust. And now it definitely feels like there's, there's very, very real pushback, particularly around, um, you know, some of the sexual ethics and uh, the church's position historically on some issues. 
those I think mm. have been very, very misunderstood and um, been mm. uh, interpreted in the least generous light. So yeah, there has been a lot of tension. But I, I tell you the other thing, people are more hungry spiritually than they've ever been before at the same time. So on one side, tremendous opposition, on the other side, tremendous hunger because mm. the human heart was designed for God. And I think people are really, after they get, after they have the opportunity culturally to do whatever they want, to live mm -hmm. however they want, they're kind of exhausted from self-fulfillment and they're finding the gospel of grace, good news. So mm -hmm. best of both worlds, I'd mm -hmm. say. Yeah, mm -hmm. Totally. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, and just would, would love to add, just uh, dial a little bit deeper into, into this book and yep. um, kind of as I'm sure partially as a product of what has been going on, some of the questions you've been receiving. Yeah. I guess yeah. maybe uh, rearticulating some misconceptions um, of the image of God in our in our lives, or you know, culturally, culturally or historically. Um, can you just talk a little bit about kind of how this? I guess the 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 purpose and really the 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 mission behind behind this book for readers. Yeah, well, I mean, you, we, I think we all sense actually that this is a very very serious moment in history. There is a lot at stake this mm -hmm. you know we we're in the, the middle of a generational pivot from millennials to gen z which both my mm -hmm. kids are a part of um we're at a time when the church is facing like unprecedented decline uh, it seems like there is just a, a total um you know almost almost like a, a cultural civil war happening in our world today mm -hmm. and so you know the church is either going to be a part of the brokenness or it's going to be a part of the solution mm -hmm. and when i my, my basic take is the church has been taken captive by cultural ideologies. It's given its allegiance to things other than Jesus. And as a result, it's being thrown out by our world. Jesus said this, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing, but it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And the church is currently being trampled underfoot because of the compromise inside of it. And so my goal is basically not to condemn or critique the world. This was Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 5. It's not my job to judge the world. The judgment should begin at the house of God. And so this is an attempt not to look outward in judgment, but inward towards critique and repentance that mm -hmm. we would become the church Jesus has in mind. So the subtitle of the book is The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. Mm -hmm. And we know that when we live according to how Jesus has taught us, even if we're misunderstood and rejected by everybody mm -hmm. else, there is a deep sense of joy of having that fidelity and intimacy with Jesus around that. So that's mm -hmm. sort of the, the vision and mission behind it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it's calling us into just a deeper realm of discipleship and a, a rather apprenticeship, as John Mark Comer calls it, and has really um, kind of expounded on on that term. And I think it's uh, it's it's helpful. I remember when we were chatting last. I think you were we were, you were recording in a closet, kind of really embodying that incarnational ministry of New York and the, the 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 privileged position that I think Christianity has in New England and the Northeast, which is. Um, seems like, you know, we're sometimes fighting the wrong battles or fighting them or doing fights that we, sh we shouldn't be fighting and, um, yeah. finding ourselves in, yeah, in, in these compromising moments. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what some of the, you've outlined your book into kind of, um, I guess a, a few different chapters now of, you yeah. know, of resisting something and, you know, finding something in lieu of something else. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about um, just a, a few of those in outline? Yeah, well, basically, so uh, the, the chapters may seem a little random or disconnected. Like if you, were to, if you were to set out how can the church resist cultural forces, and it was a generic question, I think 
that the chapters would be a little different. Mm-hmm. What I basically wanted to do was to take the most important neglected practices that I see today, the ones that I think are up for grabs in this moment, the ones that are almost like Pareto practices. If we get these right, so much of what we're trying to accomplish will follow. Mm. Yeah, so I talk about um, worship versus idolatry, um, what what idolatry does to the heart and how worship is like a force that deconstruction and lifts up Jesus, how important that is. I talk about fasting which is something that is often a neglected practice. But Jesus said uh, when he was dealing with an evil spirit and a child that wouldn't come out and his disciples tried to cast it out, he said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. And it seems that there are certain uh, forces or realities that will not be removed without a deeper engagement with God around fasting. Mm -hmm. So I've got a chapter on that. I've got a chapter on hospitality, uh, which I think is one of the greatest opportunities for the church right now and one of the the least practiced uh, teachings of Jesus. I've got a chapter trying to deal with cynicism and import celebration. You know, God is not honored by by mean-spirited, exhausted, uh, cranky saints. So, you know, what does it look like to have the joy, uh, how, how to practice that as a discipline? So, yeah, there's a whole series of things specifically designed around where mm-hmm. I think there is compromise and challenge to the church yeah. right now. Yeah. And uh, so if you do these things, I think that will be, like that, they will stand out and be disproportionately provocative if practiced right now. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, and I would love to just to dig into a few of them and just hear a little bit more behind, I guess, behind the, I really do hope uh, listeners can grab a copy themselves, but would love to just uh, dive in a little bit. Um, yeah. Starting backwards, I guess, we'll look at kind of from the end of uh, resisting cynicism. And I think something um, you and I both know of the kind of the, the, the type of thought that is being protruded in a lot of kind of higher education institutions and how that is kind of trickling out into the, to the marketplace, into the, into so many spheres of, uh, of influence in our life. And so um, how we can move and understand cynicism, but then move maybe to like a prophetic voice almost um, and kind of navigating that, that kind of the, those, that, that tension. Can you just talk a little bit about, what we can yeah, do that, well, yeah we can yeah, well cynicism i mean i'm not talking about like the ancient greek uh philosophy of cynicism which i think is like has some legitimacy to it yeah i'm talking just about like a a, a, a despair a sarcastic condescending despair oriented hopelessness hmm. and that's and, and and listen honestly if you don't believe in eternal life if this is all there is like if your time on earth is fated to be a war between political parties and cultural ideologies, and in spite of all of your best efforts, it just seems like the power forces barely budge your move, and you're going to have to grind this out for 30 years, you should embrace cynicism. Because, mm-hmm. you know, look, look at the world. Yeah. We are yeah. hundreds of years into this American experiment, and we are for the first time in American history, it looks like, facing a lower standard of life, a lower length in lifespan, lower levels of education, higher levels of debt. I mean, it's like, if this is it, you don't need a help. You know what I mean? Like this is a challenge. So you have to have something that breaks yeah. in to yeah. the to the horizon of our age with an alternative message and, and has to mm. flood it with a, with a different force. And that's what the gospel is. That's what mm. Jesus' kingdom is. He said, this is not all there is. My mm. kingdom is at hand. You can touch, taste, smell, enter it now. And it won't be fully realized, but you'll have enough of it where it'll make you hunger for more. So when Christians, uh, that's Jesus' opening message in Mark 1, repent, 
the good, believe the good news, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. So we are fundamentally kingdom people in a culture of yeah. cynicism. So if I if I was a Marxist or a neo-Marxist and all I saw was like a perpetual class struggle, I would be burned out, exhausted and hopeless. Yeah. But because I believe there's another kingdom that is not dependent on cultural forces mm-hmm. and I have eternity to work these things out, there's a deep sense of joy connected yeah. to that. So yeah. there's, a, there's a concept called eschatological realism, which means you have a picture of the future so broad you get pulled into it. Hmm. And uh, that's that's what our hope does in the midst of cynicism. It enables us to to preach this good news and then yeah. enjoy it in the church. Yeah, to be a counterculture of hope and celebration. So I'm trying to advocate um, that we preach the good news of the kingdom in the midst of all of this cynicism. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's 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 fantastic. And I think that the eschatological or just like that foretaste of what heaven's gonna and just yeah. kind of creating yeah. that imagery of like like look like this is not this is not the the end all be all. There is, there is more that we're looking forward to um, mm. and just reinvigorating that I think has been helpful in my, I mean, even my own spiritual walk of like, yeah. let me, yeah. can I stay grounded in this? Um, let's look to, I, actually, I think uh, compassion and I, I know you kind of broke up compassion, hospitality, um, but I think that there, they are kind of, there is maybe some overlap between the two. Can you talk a little bit about those two, which I think are, are, are being overlooked and we are kind of, yeah, I guess just today. Yeah, well, I mean, hospitality, I mean, one, one scholar put it like this. He said, you know, in, in the Gospels, three times we see Jesus make the statement, the Son of Man came. Mm-hmm. So we see the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10. Mm-hmm. But then it says this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So the mission was the lost. How he was going to do this was by giving his life. But the methodology, the tactic was eating mm. and drinking. And so in the Gospel of Luke, it seems that Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, leaving a meal, or on his way to a meal again. The whole thing is Jesus deconstructing the borders and boundaries of his day by radical hospitality. But we know this, but in the first century, who you ate with was a huge indicator of who you were in relationship with. And so they put boundaries around the table to keep out uh, people. And Jesus created a space through hospitality where those people resort to intimate fellowship with him. And uh, in a culture where we turn everybody into the other, we, we villainize them, we demonize them, we fear them, we turn them into stereotypes. One of the best things and most practical things Christians can do is uh, get around a table and listen to people's stories and share a meal or a coffee together. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, church services, you know, they're once a week but you're going to eat 21 plus meals a week. You're going to have multiple opportunities every week to sit down and listen and share. Mm. So that's one of the great tasks of the Christian in this age, particularly when there's so much hostility, so much anger and so much suspicion. And uh, Niebuhr called this uh, humanizing the representative group where we've created a caricature in our mind of them. Mm. And then we actually talk with someone and we're like, oh my gosh, they share the image of God. They're just trying to get through life with some dignity and mobility just like me. Yeah. We have so much in common, and that should be a starting point for restoring sort of civil dialogue at least, and then creating space for the kingdom of God to break in. Mm-hmm. So some of my most uh, incredible <laughs> experiences in New York City. I mean, yeah. I, this is not an exaggeration. I've eaten with billionaires, and I've eaten with homeless people. Yeah. And I have found that underneath all of the, the cultural uh, exteriors are people who just want to be loved. They want to be yeah. seen. They want to be known. Yeah. So that's that's a gift that we hold as a part of our tradition that needs to be recovered. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, I'm certainly advocating for compassion being aroused by creating space for yeah. hospitality in our lives for others. 
Yeah, no, and I think I think that's just a that's a fantastic point, and especially I mean in a place like New York, and I'm in Boston myself. Uh, I think similar climates in terms of like yeah, looking totally. at some of the different indicators that are metrics. Terrible sports teams, but very <laughs> very uh, very very good city. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness, I, I'm just not going to respond to that. I'm just going to move past yeah. it. I'm just going to move past it. Um, no, but we can find ourselves in these in our own kind of own little cultural silos, right? Whether it's. Yeah. Um, if you hang out in Upper East Side, you don't go to West Village or like whatever that whatever that looks like. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you, you kind of run into different people where where you're where you're based. How do you do? You have any advice, kind of, for meeting uh, people who uh, just gathering at the table and really adopting this this hospitality? Um, kind of wherever we are for listeners right now, like you know what I, I do want to yeah. kind of really model this. What are some practical ways to do so? Well, I, I, so number one, you have to you have to care, you have to want to, you actually have to love people enough to give up some of your margin mm. and value listening to somebody that you fundamentally think is wrong and disagree with. So number one, you, you can't be selfish, otherwise you just surround yourself with people yeah. who think, act, love, and live like you do. So number one is like, do you have a, an orientation towards others? Um, number two, yeah. it's just like, hey, you know, there's 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 such a thing as people skills where you sort of ease into it. So, you know, step, step one is sort of like, oh, tell me what you believe. Step two is like, oh, that's really interesting. How did you kind of believe that? And then you, you build those small connections over time that ultimately lead to, hey, look, man, we've talked about a bunch of stuff. Let's just grab a beer or a coffee or whatever. I'd love to hear more of your story or your perspective. And then shut up and listen. Man. Mm-hmm. Just like ask people about themselves, how they, come to, how they came to view these things. And, um, yeah, so there's the intentional slow process of genuinely seeking understanding mm-hmm. by reaching out to other people. And you look, you, you said it would be two things, strategy and spontaneity. Is there people you sense God leading you to? And then seizing those random moments where just a window opens up and you get into an amazing conversation and just being present in that. Yeah. So I, 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 God made me aware of this in New York and I just started walking a little more slowly creating a little more margin between events yeah. and just saying, God, is yeah. there an opportunity with a stranger here? And so in the book, I talk about this encounter I had in a taxi, just eating uh, eating with a gentleman from another country who was an immigrant and just hearing his whole story. And it was like one of my favorite moments in New York City. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah. intentionality and then seizing those moments when they come up. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I, and I think you just pointed to, it can just be a very small one-on-one encounter um, rather than I think sometimes... The, the, what immediately came to mind is like, all right, can we get everyone around a dinner table or like get like a round table and like get everyone around right. and just like, and it's like, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be this like structured. I mean, it can be, um, but yeah. even, and I think I don't want to make overgeneralized statements here, but I think a lot of guys have problems or have a, maybe a greater challenge of finding, of like communicating and finding this larger commu- yeah. being in community. Well, yeah, it's, it can be as simple as, I mean, if you're going to a lunch cart, um, you know, commenting on shared cultural moments. Right. So you can say, oh, man, you know, we've got a new election. What do you think about Biden or Trump? And just listen. Just talk about what everybody's talking about. Use those natural connection points. There's right. so much happening in our world today. There's so much fuel to hmm. start conversations. And then just ask people, what do you think about this? Or how do you see this? And then just listen. So, yeah, you never yeah. know where one of those little combos will go in terms of friendship and opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so I know kind of you've based this book on Bonhoeffer, um, somebody who is, yeah. who is not, is not a foreign to New York city. I know he spent some time there. Um, yeah. can you talk a little bit about for folks who are not super familiar and, 
of kind of the impact of his life, kind of what was so what was so remarkable about his kind of context and how it might be just a, not necessarily an exact model for today, but um, can yeah. kind of be important. So an inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, Bonhoeffer, um, he was a pastor and a theologian. Um, he died uh, just a couple of weeks before the end of World War II when his camp was uh, liberated. So, yeah, from the last century, German theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely brilliant. Finished his doctorate at age 21. And Karl mm-hmm. Barth, who was one of the leading uh, theologians of the last century, said that his doctoral dissertation was a theological miracle. And uh, so incredibly intelligent uh, young wow. man. And, um, and But he didn't really have like a profound relationship with the church itself. He was right. pretty much an intellectual. Uh, then on his travels, he started to get a bit of a vision of the beauty of the church. And then he actually taught a Sunday school class. And it was like these, these uh, young kids that basically showed him how all of his ideas at, at such a brilliant level need to be embodied in the tangible love and way of Jesus. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, he came over and studied in New York City, went to Union Theological Seminary. Um, while he was there, he was very disappointed with the academic robustness of the school and liberal Christianity mm. and ended up um, um, uh, yeah, ended up attending Black Church's Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem and just had a life-changing experience in the Black Churches. He saw a rich biblical faith, passionate spirituality, vision of justice, and, and it sort of shook his heart. And uh, so he basically took what he'd seen in Harlem and then took it back to Germany. And as the Third Reich was beginning to rise and the church was capitulating to German powers, um, he sort of built this underground movement of resistance. And his vision mm-hmm. was to basically live in the way of Jesus following the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he built an underground seminary called Finkenwald, where um, Life Together and the Cost of Discipleship, probably his two most famous books, they've sold in the millions of copies. Mm-hmm. They were rooted out of his vision of discipleship. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so then he ends up... Um, being executed for being a part of an assassination plot uh, in Hitler. But he left behind him a tremendous body of work and one of God's faithful um, witnesses in the midst of all of that pressure. So I'm not trying to make the case that these are exactly parallel moments, but I am saying there is compromise in the church. There is cultural forces sabotaging our witness Mm -hmm. and we have to consciously resist them. Yeah. We cannot be complicit in compromise at this time of history. And so yeah. he's sort of a launching off point for a movement of resistance in our day. Yeah. What, and, and I think one of the things you mentioned was just this liveliness of kind of some of his church experiences and where he was yeah. able to just really feel the, God's presence and just understand the move um, in that particular congregation and just that community. Mm-hmm. And um, I think sometimes we can have the, the tendency to kind of look in and just kind of, again, just kind of get pigeonholed into what we're looking at. And um, I mean, I think a lot of my personal faith formation has been from, uh, from from followers of Christ coming from a lot of different cultures, a lot of, a lot of different backgrounds. And I think global Christianity is at a, uh, is at a in, really interesting kind of turning point right now and mm-hmm. looking at the, Af- in the Africa's and the, in South and Central America. Um, but I, so I, it's been, I've really found a kind of a presence in understanding that move. Yeah. Um, in New York City, though, where have you really experienced God's presence, especially in these last few months where it seems like it's uh, death and despair everywhere? Yeah, I mean, so so the quarantine COVID in New York definitely made... So for the last six years, I've lived two blocks from Times Square. So I'm, yeah. I'm right in the heart of the city, neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. And 
the crowds, I mean, the volume of people coming in and out of there is just incredible. Yeah. And to watch all of that trickle down, I mean, so I get up early in the morning and walk around the city and pray. Yeah. And uh, there's there's times when I'm the only person in Times Square. I mean, like like a, an apocalyptic film. Incredible. Me, not even security guards. They were there. I just couldn't <laughs> see them. And I just went, like, how is this even happening? So, yeah, it has been very, very sad to watch the city be crippled. And I wouldn't even say humbled. It's beyond humbling. It's been devastated. And yeah, so many people yeah. have lost their jobs, record unemployment yeah, right yeah. now, unemployment levels of the Great Depression in New York. Yeah, yeah. So where do you find hope? Well, this is the opportunity that our hope is not built on our circumstances. So I think it's been a great work of sanctification hmm. where many of the things that we've been relying on have been stripped away and our true faith has been revealed. So again, the classic practices, meditation, time with God, mm. staying connected to community, those sorts of really important core practices, even though culture shifts, our purpose doesn't. Mm -hmm. We are trying to make missional disciples who encounter the presence of God, are formed into the image of Jesus and join him in his mission. So it's actually been like a really beautiful season mm. for the church. And particularly with some of the racial tensions, our church has, you know, obviously been uh, involved in a lot of that. It's been another opportunity for the church to stand up and care mm. about mm. what Jesus taught and cared about, particularly in Luke chapter four. Mm. So it all depends what you look on. Are you overwhelmed by your circumstances? It's tempting, but yeah. we have to get our eyes on uh, back on God. And he, one of the things that's brought me comfort is that for whatever reason of all the times in history that we could have lived, God said, I want you here now to steward my kingdom in this place. And so to me, I've tried to have a stewardship lens. How do I lead, serve, love? God's mm. put me here. Why has he put me here? And getting my eyes on my purpose, not just the circumstances, has yeah. been one of those main yeah. ways I sort of kept yeah. my heart uh, full and my faith up. Yeah, totally. And I, I think one thing, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but a lot of us have found ourselves in a place where we are obviously with the start of coronavirus in March, and now kind of this second wave uh, almost coming in a lot of places are, are back in our own households and with our family, uh, you know, or, or just in a place where we're in kind of closer proximity, maybe to just a few people um, and kind of our social lives have really changed. How has, you mentioned fasting and you also kind of mentioned this, this pace of life that we're at, as you mentioned, it's, you have to, it's a choice to make to resist against this, whereas even though even if our circumstances might put us here, we can still find our way to not, you know, a relaxation is def different from rest. And we can still find ourselves in a place where we're still hurried or even maybe even busier um, and lacking and really kind of not really caring for our spiritual life when it's like, this is a great opportunity for some, you know, for some of us. How, how, how have you experienced that with, I guess, with yourself and just with the with those around you? Yeah, I mean, you know, James says, consider it pure joy. He doesn't say it is pure joy, but that's, that is a mentality that we have to take on. And why? Because ultimately what it's doing is producing a perseverance within us so that we are mature and complete, not making anything. So, you know, one of the great lessons I've learned in my life is that you actually don't learn anything from the good times. You purely enjoy them. You know, maybe you learn God's good and you enjoy him, but you don't have to, you're not required to learn that. That is a default mm -hmm. setting. God is good to us. But this, so I try to view this sort of as a school of formation. God, what are you revealing? So for our church, I did a, um, a 10 part series through the fruit of the spirit. And I was like, let's yeah. just, because under stress, yeah. the flesh comes out. All your protection mechanisms, your self-defense mechanisms. I mean, look at what was happening in our culture. We were stockpiling toilet paper, man. 
I mean, we were hiding granola bars under our mattresses. I mean, we went into self-preservation mode so hard. And so I said, let's not be people who react in the flesh. Let's walk in the spirit. So I use that as a way of evaluating is more of the character of Christ being formed in my life. Mm. And then, yeah, paying attention to where my hopes and fears were actually built. What am I worried that I've lost? How do you learn to grieve and deal with the deeper currents of your heart that are often neglected? So, yeah, I've basically viewed this as a school of formation and then basically tried to put in sort of rhythms and anchor points to check in on those deeper things that in ways perhaps I haven't in other seasons. And I've honestly found it to be very life-giving. Like, I, I want to be clear, I would never choose this again if I could get 2020 over and we could have kept rolling i would have preferred that but i am i will all of us will never be the same this is a defining moment probably as defining as 9 11 was for the previous generation so how do we utilize this use it as a school of formation and get your eyes on jesus and who you're becoming and um let that be the guide i think yeah no absolutely absolutely um it, it is funny that that fear response of how like I mean, I felt it myself and it is like, wow, part of me is like, I've never really felt this, the magnitude of what this is right now because everybody's in it too. And it's like, oh, okay. Like this is, this is real, not just some random situation, but this is actually, this is happening across the world. You know? Um, yeah, absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about, um, a few of the idols that we may face um, or just some of the ones that we should keep in mind. Uh, you mentioned, I think, sexual eth- sexual ethics, technology, um, j- just to name a few, but are there some major idols that you think have really been exacerbated um, that we should just uh, really be attentive of? Yeah, I mean, if I could categorize it as one, one big idol would be this, the self. The self, that's it, man. The self and everything connected to the life of the flesh. Mm. So you either sow to the spirit or you Mm. sow to the flesh. Mm. And uh, yeah, in Galatians 5, there's that list of the flesh. And the vast majority is just honestly about self-preservation and Mm self-fulfillment. And uh, so Jesus Jesus is the one that says, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me. So it's very hard to have a a vision of self-denial and a culture of self-fulfillment. So we live in a, you know, our godlessness is the sovereignty of self. That's our ultimate form of godliness. Hmm. It's not just putting an idol before God. It's putting ourselves before God, becoming a God ourselves. That means we get to determine right and wrong. Uh, That means that we get to determine how our resources are spent. We get to determine what we value. And so dethroning the self, I think, is the the hardest challenge. And that comes through self-denial and only Hmm. a vision of the beauty of Jesus we realize he should be so there is other larger categories you know um fear control power sexuality yeah those are definitely um idols that many of us face but the root of it is a desire for self before Mm. god Mm. and if if the first commandment is you should have no other gods before me the number one thing we do in our culture is put ourselves before god Mm. so reclaiming that practice and that's why worship is so important because worship gets our eyes off ourselves onto god and uh, that's when we get a vision of his beauty, his love, his holiness, his justice, his grace, his power. Mm. And then that sort of puts us back in our place. Yeah. So in, in Romans 1, when you look at idolatry, it says, they did not acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. So the root of all idolatry is failure to see God for who he is and be grateful for what he's given. Yeah. So what we end up with then is, in, is a self-definition that leads to entitlement. 
that's idolatry. Mm. I get to define myself, not God, and I deserve, not I'm thankful. Wow. And then basically wow. it all maps out and takes on nuance from that root point. No, I, that's the, I, I, I'm kind of putting those together. I think that entitlement is something that is 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 so real. Yeah. And I think one thing. Yeah. I mean, I know I've been learning, and I think I think some people have been experiencing is the, is the value of lament too. And I think histor. I mean, for me and for a lot of my church experiences, I haven't really understood what lament is. A lot of it is mm-hmm. again, and it, I think part of that is a taking away from yourself too, to see yeah, to right. see those around you and those who are yeah. struggling, those who are suffering. And just to be and to weep with them in that moment yeah. Um, yeah. and sit through it. And I think the challenging part is, right, when do you move from that death to that resurrection moment? Um, but, you know, I mean, even even knowing, I mean, I, I think about Lazarus and, you know, Jesus, God knew that he was going to raise Lazarus, but still yeah. Yeah. had him sit there in that moment, um, had you know, was still in that moment with, with him. So I uh, found it really, really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, just to kind of look, I guess, practically, what are some ways that we can maybe reorder our loves um, in just our daily practices of uh, welcoming the Holy Spirit, the presence of God into our lives, um, kind of as we kind of as, as we send off with this episode? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, perhaps a couple of things. Uh, the first thing, like how you start your day is super important. Like setting the tone of your day, like it, it takes me on a perfect day and not every day is perfect, but a lot of them are pretty good. It takes uh, a considerable amount of time, perhaps two hours to really get my heart set. And so that would include loving God with my heart, soul, mind and strength. So that would be exercise, that would be worship meditation and scripture, um, prayer and devotion as well. Okay. But to, to get the heart set right there, at the start of the day, so you determine the focus of the day. That, that to me is a huge practice. A lot of people wake up, reach for the phone, immediately their adrenal mm. glands being activated because they see something that they they are angry with, or they're drawn immediately into politics. And we're living lives of giant reaction rather than sort of like proactive devotion. So how we start our day, I think, is very important. Yeah. And then also at the end of the day, um, you know, I do the prayer of examine where I basically sit down and lay my day before God and say. Where did I feel closest to God? Where did I feel most distant? Why? What's that revealing to me about what's happening in my heart? And then just, mm. you know, bringing that into the presence of God and asking for grace and peace and, and more awareness of his presence tomorrow. So those bookends to me are disproportionately important. And um, mm. I think when we when we take those seriously, we begin to frame each day differently. And uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in how you open and close the day. You never get it again. Yeah. And then I like to do a little midday check in our church has a prayer room. Hmm. And, um, but if, if your church, you know, if people don't have communities that have prayer rooms, you just take 10 minutes, just, you know, get outside, step into your backyard or onto your street, just breathe, acknowledge the presence of God. So it's those little check-ins. Yeah. What we do in the small moments it consistently are far more important than the random big thing that we try and hmm. do. So I'm a big believer in building in those those daily uh, rhythms of engagement with God, and that's that's had a massive impact on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome, fantastic, um, and just so t- two things: one, just where can we find? I have the book here. Where can we find a copy of this of this book? Um, and then also, if people are really interested in kind of some of the, the in, interested in your writing and want to l- learn a little bit more, maybe of some people that you've been referencing, is there are there are a few resources or books? that you could point people toward? Yeah, I mean, so 
you can get that. I mean, with most people not being able to leave their homes right now uh, in a lot of places, you can just get it from Amazon. One click. And um, so it's, yeah, it's Amazon one <laughs> click. It's uh, the Audible version. I, so I read the introduction and the conclusion on it, and it's because of COVID. I couldn't get to a studio and do it. Otherwise, yeah. I would have read the whole thing. Yeah. But the guy who read it did a really beautiful job. And um, so if you're looking for like to, you know, sit on the deck and just take your chapter in and, you know, that, that's that's a strong way to do it. Is, is, there, an really into... is there an Australian accent, though, for the, the person that, that did it? No, or... just ah. just for the first of the life. But he does a great job. He, he does, does a great, great job, job, though. It's the same job. guy that reads Tim Keller's book. So it sounds like, you know, smart and <laughs> thoughtful or whatever. Um, that works. So, yeah, so it's, it's definitely online. Um, and then... I would actually recommend like at the back of the book, just go through the bibliography of the books that I referenced in that book. So good writers will basically read maybe 10 or 12 books per chapter and integrate the best thoughts from all of those things into that chapter. And so I've definitely tried to do that. Mm -hmm. So if you want, if you want further resources on anything that I say in any chapter, just look at who I've quoted and read those books. And that's how I find my favorite authors. I read someone, I see who they quote. I love it. I read that book and it's like mining a vein of content and Mm -hmm. thought. And um, so there should be some good resources in the back. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, John, it's been a, it's been a pleasure um, and honor. No worries, man. Very grateful. Um, so thank you for your time today. And uh, I, I know that listeners will, and viewers as well, will, uh, I really yeah. appreciate this message. Thanks so much, mate. Grace and peace.